Good morning, good morning. Let's be finding our seats again. Glad that everyone is here. I'm going to open uh, with a word of prayer here from John, and then we're going to get into our series from the Minor Prophets. John, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten one from the Father, full of grace and truth. We thank you, God, that your word is full of grace and full of truth. We thank you that Jesus came and displayed that grace and truth. He modeled the very life, God, the very pulse of heaven. And we want that, Father God, in our midst, not just only this Sunday, but every single Sunday. We ask that you would grow that grace, you would grow that truth, you would grow your presence, God. We pray that blessing for every single church, God, in our city, that you would raise up your church to be just a powerful witness, God, of your goodness of who you are. As we look at Zephaniah this morning, Father, may your spirit be teaching our hearts. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read this verse here from Luke chapter 12 as a prelude to Zephaniah. Jesus said, everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And then as famously paraphrased by Uncle Ben when he spoke to Peter Parker in that classic scene in the car, with great power comes great responsibility. And so I want to start out with this quote this morning as we talk about Zephaniah, who is the eighth minor prophet now that we're looking at. There are 12 prophets altogether, uh, and we're looking at number eight this morning. And I want to focus um, on him a little bit more because I want to remind us of, of what it is that prophets actually do and who they are and why they speak to Israel the way that they do. When we read, as we have in the last two months, the, the strong and fierce words of the prophets and the judgment they bring, we can get the impression that these men were stern, scary, foreboding, and we can think of them as just cold truth-tellers without an ounce of compassion. But this perspective is far from the truth. The prophets didn't just speak the truth, they spoke the truth in love as Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. They spoke on God's behalf after decades, and in some cases, centuries of patience by God. The fact that God was that long-suffering shows that he demonstrated his love to the Jews before he sent the prophets to speak to them. God's love was already subsumed in the message, no matter how fierce it was. The prophets did not have to say, I love you, I love you, I love you before they said, thus saith the Lord, because God had already proven his love to them. We know that God's default is mercy and not judgment. Why do you think that he sent Jesus to the cross? If God's default was justice, we'd be us on the cross and not Jesus. And there would be no Easter to celebrate. So when God spoke strongly, he did so with good reason, to whom much is given, much is required. And there was no nation then, even to this day, in whom God sovereignly chose to display his wonders and his mighty hand, speaking of Israel. They have the distinct privilege of being able to claim the very divine history that we read in the word of God. I can't manage, imagine what it's like to literally be a descendant, a blood descendant of the Jewish race and be able to read this Bible and say, this is my God and this is what he's done for my country. What would it be like if we as Canadians could claim that God split the Pacific Ocean for us like he did the Red Sea? 
or that he provided manna for us in the plains of Alberta like he did in the desert or met us on the Canadian Rockies like he did on Mount Sinai to give us the Ten Commandments, our future Constitution and Bill of Rights. Or that ultimately we could say one of our own, a Canadian, died on the cross and rose from the grave for the sins of the world. What would it be like if we could claim such a divine history as part of our heritage? It's really beyond words. And when we go through the Bible and we talk about the Hebrew people, they are the only nation on the earth. Currently, there's about 200 nations in the world. Over the course of history, I don't know how many it is in total, but obviously many nations have come and gone either through consolidation, through division, through war. But there are hundreds of nations, and of those hundred nations, only one can say, this book is about us. And if the Jews read this, how could they deny God? And all the amazing supernatural things that God did for them. The point is that God personally birthed and sustained Israel to this day. They are the favored nation, not because they earned the right to be favored, but because God chose them in his sovereignty. With whom much is given, much is required. And part of how God set up Israel is that it would be a theocracy and not a democracy that God would rule directly from heaven to this nation through judges, kings, and prophets. So when you read in the Bible, the book of Judges, that's God's theocracy at work. When you read Kings, that's God's theocracy at work. His wisdom and his counsel is poured in directly from heaven to earth through these human vessels. There's, there's no voting, no campaigning, no political parties. Now with the, the mess that we see out there, I think that sounds pretty good. No rancor, no just mudslinging, no signs. There was no need to because God was reigning gloriously over his chosen people. As a theocratic nation, the state and church were integrated as one. I think it's interesting that one of the great tenets of democratic nations is the freedom of religion. But the distinct separation between church and state. Now, its original intent in setting up that separation was so that the state would stay out of the affairs of the church and not that godliness would be barred from the state. That whole paradigm has been flipped so now that the state can persecute the church, but that was not the intent. But that's a discussion for another day. The point here is that there's no nation like Israel that was directly ruled and blessed by God. And God told them in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, in particular Exodus to Deuteronomy, that for being the chosen nation, you have special responsibilities. You must represent me. And if you veer from following me, I will send representatives to tell you to get back on track. And this is what prophets do. Point us to the way. Help us get back and be in alignment with God. And if necessary, deliver tough words to get our attention. Prophets point the people of God back to their covenant relationship with the Lord. Every word they say is life because it's rooted in covenant. God is not a God of rules. God is a God of relationships. Galatians teaches us the reason why the law was given is because of our sinfulness and we need parameters. We need boundaries. We need guardrails because in our own natural mind, because our minds are darkened, we don't know what is right and wrong. Now get this, in the Garden of Eden, was there the Ten Commandments? 
There was no law. We just think that the law was everywhere, every time, but there was no law because they didn't need it. They had not fallen. And when the Spirit of God is within us, we don't need the law. That original picture speaks that God is a God of relationship and not rules. But it's so easy for us to not understand the overall picture and just think, oh, God is a God of rules and he's just throwing the book at us and that's what prophets do. No, prophets speak out of covenant which speaks out of a rich tradition of relationship. They speak not only truth, but they speak the truth out of love. As in historical, proven, tangible, demonstrated love. By the time we get to Zephaniah, which we're looking at today, God had already waited 50 years for the nation to turn around. I have just a, a little picture here of the books that we're working through. And I have one line there which represents when Judah ultimately goes into exile. As we've taught, the whole nation gets deported. Judah is moving to that place where they're going to be completely deported. And God waited 50 years for them to turn around before he sent Zephaniah to speak to them. Last week I talked about Nahum's word to Assyria. God waited 150 years. Is that patience or not? Wives, if your husband don't clean up the dishes or pick up their socks, how long do you wait to tell them? Husband, if your wives charge up the credit card, how long do you wait before you say something to them? Parents, if your kid is bullying someone at school, how long do you wait before you step in and say something? We wouldn't and we shouldn't wait very long. But here we are, we've committed sins way worse than that and God is patient and that patience costs. Being patient is painful. You've heard my stories of going to Tim Hortons and being underserved. Every second I'm waiting in the line, that's pain. Every time I see a, an undertrained person who cannot find the button for donut, that's painful. <laughs> waiting for someone to change requires something that's painful. And God pays his dues before he speaks to us. His love costs us something. None of the prophets spoke without God first showing and demonstrating his love, his kindness, his mercy, provision, and utter care. So when it came time for confrontation, words of confrontation, he didn't have to say, oh, honey, oh, sugar plum, can you please just be in the right place for me to speak to you? No, it was time to unload the truth with both barrels because God had already dropped bombs of love on them. Have you ever heard a fight between Someone that you don't know and you think, man, why are they going at it like that? You have no context to understand the anger or the words that are being spoken. Yet later when you find out that faithfulness and adultery was at the center of what they were talking about, you think, oh my word, I can't believe they were that civil. When we read these words from the minor prophets, our minds can get offended if we don't understand the context. Oh, God's just so judgmental. He's just so harsh. But you have to pan back and see the entire Bible. When we understand the background, the history, and the love that was invested in the situation by God, we instead say, thank you, Lord, for the prophets. They truly do speak in love. Because without the prophets, we would go into the ditch and stay in the ditch. So when we come to Zephaniah, he prophesies destruction to Judah. 
Chapter 1, verse 4. Speaking for God, first person, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place in the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. We don't have time to look at the, the cross-referencing passage in 2 Kings chapter 22, but God says it even more clearly. He says, I will wipe you off the face like someone wipes away a plate, and I will turn you upside down. Does God know how to use a metaphor or what? He makes it very clear. And when God says in, in the part A of this verse that my hand is against you, this is amplified for us in the two verses prior. The scope of what God is going to do will be like in the days of Noah before the flood. What happened in the days of Noah? Came to a point where evil was just completely covering the face of the earth and God had to do a global cleansing. So he told Noah, build the ark because I am going to wipe everything off the face of the earth. And this is what we read here. I'm going to completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This idea of God's all-encompassing judgment is further developed for us in verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. Not somewhere way down in the future. No, it's at the door. It's knocking. It's here. God's judgment is referred to as the day of the Lord. And four times Zephaniah uses this phrase to, to paint the big picture. Chapter 1, verse 7, verse 14, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 2. This is not some trifling news that Zephaniah is bringing. The day of the Lord's at hand, the day of accountability is upon us. And then the prophet goes on in verse 15 and tells us the emotional effect that the day of the Lord is to have up upon us. And it's given in these four emotional couplets. Verse 15, that day will be a day of wrath. The first couplet, a day of distress and anguish. Second couplet, a day of trouble and ruin. Third, a day of darkness and gloom. And four, a day of clouds and blackness. This is a day to mourn. This is a day to say what is going on. This is a day to get introspective. This is a day to repent. This is a day to see what is it that God is saying to us. God deliberately came to disrupt and to disturb the Jewish people at the emotional level because God is after the heart because heart is where change occurs. There has to be that inner motivation before you actually have the energy and the strength and the vision to actually do something and change something about your life. You can have all the knowledge you want, but until something drops from that knowledge to your heart, that impetus will not be there. And so God is going after the heart. In Jeremiah 17, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We need the light to shine on our hearts because we can deceive ourselves. We can deceive other people. We can be smooth talkers. We can be quick on our feet and rationalize all our actions. It's amazing to me when we look at all the courtroom drama that's going on whether it's wealthy people being put in jail, whether it's powerful people taking advantage of women, whether it's political leaders, they are 
consummate liars. They're able to lie just like they breathe. And Jeremiah is right on. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We are sinners because our hearts are sinful. And God uses external circumstances, earthquakes and floods and wars and displacement, famine, pestilence, coronavirus, to get at our inner condition so that we become aware of the rot that's on the inside. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus paints this global picture of the last days where heaven and earth will be shaken. Why is it that God allows disasters? Why is it that God allows calamities to come upon nations? It's because he is trying to get at the inner condition of their hearts. If everything is comfortable and fine, we just kind of fall asleep spiritually. We don't think that we have any need. But that's the very thing that is dangerous to our souls. In 112, Zephaniah diagnoses the root of the problem. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish them who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing. The Lord's not going to do anything. You can prophesy all you want, Zephaniah. Nothing is going to happen. You don't scare us. Complacency and cynicism was at the root of Judah's backslidden condition. And I think that's a timely message to us as the church global that it's so easy for us to fall into complacency and cynicism, spirit of unbelief, thinking we're so smart. Intellectualism leads us to pride. This book is a book of myths. We don't need to follow it because we are so intelligent now. Oh, we have science. We have our philosophy. We have our systems of thinking. Complacency, cynicism, these are spiritual killers. They're toxic to our faith just as they were to Judah. So God sends in the prophets to detoxify us. Another way to look at Zephaniah's prophecy or the prophet's word in general is to see that their words are meant to be blows to the soul. God is trying to stop us from sinning because as Ezekiel said, the soul that sinneth dies. Little King James for you. The soul that sins or sinneth dies. And so in Proverbs chapter 20, we read this. Blows and wounds scrub away evil and beatings purge the inmost being. Again, God is after the inward thing. He uses the exterior to get at the interior. The words of the prophet comes to scrub away evil and purge the inner man. And what was it that Judah did that was so terrible? I've showed you this chart before in the past few weeks. This is what we're focusing on. Here is Zephaniah. The exile is about to happen. And here is King Manasseh. Now, anywhere you see white, that means they were good kings. Anywhere you see it blackened or grayed out, that means they were evil kings. And the Bible says that Manasseh was the most evil of all the kings. This was the spiritual climate that Zephaniah inherited when he started his prophetic ministry. Well, what was it that Manasseh did that was so bad? You can follow along with me. I'm going to read some verses from 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. 
We just went through the book of Joshua. We saw God's glorious military victories, how the Spirit was on their side so that the Canaanites could be cleared out. What does Manasseh do? He invites them back in. Are you kidding me? That's like winning a war and then having the enemies come back. It says he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. So you see this white box here before Manasseh? Hezekiah, his dad, was a great king. Did so many amazing things for God. But for some reason, he did not inherit his dad's legacy. He didn't pick up his dad's spiritual habits. He didn't pick up his dad's devotion or loyalty to Jehovah. Instead, he completely flips the equation upside down and begins to desecrate the sacred places in Jerusalem. It says he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah in the house of the Lord. Okay, it's one thing to erect an altar to Baal somewhere out there, but to do it in the house of the Lord. That would be like me taking that cross down and putting a statue of Buddha right there. If you were to come in and you go, what in the world is going on? Hey, listen, we're really open-minded. We love all the world religions. Let's just mince it together and it's going to be wonderful. That would be blasphemous. And that's what Manasseh did. He brought in these unclean, pagan identities into the house of the Lord. It says he made his sons pass through fire. What kind of dad does that? Practiced witchcraft and used divination, dealt with mediums and spiritists. Now he's literally going to the dark side, accessing the world of the demonic, as if the prophets of God were not good enough. Were they not hearing from the Lord? Of course they were hearing from the Lord, but he didn't want to hear from the Lord. He wanted to go to the other side and get counsel from them as if that would help him. It says he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, doing evil in the sight of God. He treated Jerusalem like he was a mob boss. This is my territory. You don't do anything in my territory. If you do, I order an execution. Filled the entire city with blood, killing off innocent people. No wonder God's wrath was stirred. So then we go back and we look at chapter 1 and what Zephaniah is saying. It all makes sense. It's crystal clear now why God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It makes sense why God says, I'm going to cut off the remnants of Baal. First of all, you're like, what? There's no Baal here. Wait a minute. There is Baal here because of the leadership. Chapter 3 Zephaniah says, Woe to her who was rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Bang on. Perfect diagnosis of their spiritual condition. God's people were so far away from their calling, God had to intervene with stinging rebuke and unequivocal discipline. In Proverbs 22, 15, we read that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Why does a rod have to be used on a child? Because they can't be reasoned with. You cannot talk to them like an adult. Unfortunately, Israel had regressed from being an adult who you could reason with back to a child, and they needed a rod. 
They needed physical pain. They needed duress coming against their soul to wake them up out of their drunken stupor. Hebrews 12.5. This is New Covenant now. This is Paul looking back at the Old Covenant and realizing the wisdom of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Oh, that hurts. That's too much. Please don't do that. No. You know what? Have a bit of a backbone. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. Scourges? Isn't that kind of intense? Yeah, it is intense. Because that's how flinty our sinful nature is. You don't put kid gloves to sin. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So fatherhood is tied intricately to disciplining. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. Okay, we can discipline out of our anger, we can discipline out of our impatience, out of our flesh, out of rage. That's not for their good, and we're not conforming them to something that's good. But when God disciplines us, it's so that we can share in his holiness. And so what does this tell us? It tells us that prophets are spiritual parents of the highest order. They are Hebrews 12 parents. Because they love, they must discipline. And love that does not discipline is not love. It's just squishy love. It's just the culture's definition of what love is. But Hebrews 12 makes it vividly clear that there has to be those blows to the soul that will cleanse the inner man. Our culture has got it wrong. Of course, we can discipline in our flesh, in rage, in cruelty. Maybe we've seen it or experienced it ourselves. I'm certainly not diminishing anyone's experience in that way. But that doesn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bath water. In our case, our culture has not only thrown out the bath water, but the bathroom as well. The institution of discipline has been obliterated. Caitlin just came up and shared about mops. We have a lot of new parents or expectant parents. In terms of how you think about raising your children, go back to God's word. I implore you. There's nothing more important. The next generation is literally entrusted to you. Can you quote one or two or three or four verses about how to raise your kid in the ways of God. Don't listen to modern culture or just search the web or Google how to parent or even look at your contemporaries. Go right to the source, the word of God. Study it, meditate on it, get insight from the Lord. We're so far away from God's understanding of love. If you as a parent don't warn your kids of danger and as a result they die from it, whose fault is that? If as a parent you don't discipline your children to be well-behaved and godly and purge their insides from evil and rebellion, whose fault is it when they trouble you with bad behavior? God and prophets do not parent this way. They first establish an unshakable, undeniable bond of love so when they discipline, their discipline is clean and righteous. 
They discipline to save us from ourselves. How many know we need saving from ourselves? We cannot fight our way out of a paper bag, let alone save ourselves. So Zephaniah and the other seven prophets that we've studied thus far have much to teach us about the practical side of love. And then we read this from Psalm 119. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. The first part of the prophetic word comes to put us in the dust. God, I see myself for who I really am. I see you. I see me. I'm like Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. The moment God peels back the curtain and the light comes, we actually see our condition. I do most of the dusting in our house. But if the blinds aren't open, I think, you know what? There's no dust around here. Then the blinds go up and the sunlight hits all the furniture. I go, my goodness, time to get the Swiffer out. We need the light. And then when the light comes, we go, oh, my gosh, I better do something about it. But if the light is not there, there's no impetus. And King David says in this psalm that once we're in the dust, part two of the word is to be revived. When God brings a word of discipline, it's not just to reprove us soundly, it's to revive us. And that word there in the Hebrew is dabar, the word that I've underlined. This is the exact same word that the Bible uses to describe when prophets receive prophetic revelation. When Isaiah, the word of the Lord came to me. When Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. When Daniel said, the word of the Lord came to me. That's prophetic revelation. That word which describes God's prophetic burden and mantle is the same word that's used to describe us being revived. They're one and the same. In the seeds of reproof is the seeds of restoration and healing. Yeah, the, the prophets, they bring a rebuke and a warning but it's also meant to heal us, to bring us back to the Lord. And this is what Zephaniah envisioned when he prophesied what he said in chapter 3. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Wow, this is... This is ointment on the wound. This is, this is salve. After all those intense words, Zephaniah is turning the corner. He says, listen, Judah, the discipline will only last for a time. And then verse 17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. He'll take great delight in you. Right now he is not delighting you. Right now you are a pain. I need to take you to the woodshed. But there's going to be a time where it's going to be where you're gold. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I referred to this last week. God rejoicing over us with singing. I can't wait to go to heaven and hear King David play his harp and sing. His music was so anointed, it drove away the evil spirits from the court of King Saul. What kind of music is that? I want to hear it. When he appointed 24-7 musicians and singers to sing before the ark, the best of the best. What did that choir sound like? What did the instruments sound like? And then I just imagine my mind after a performance by King David 
and this amazing worship band, God steps up to the stage and says, I'm going to sing. Why do we sing? Because God sings. Why do we write songs? Because God writes songs. It all comes from him. What will the voice of God sound like? And what will it sound like when he sings over us? Eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. This is a kind of restoration. This is a kind of restoring. This is a kind of reviving that the prophetic word is meant to do is to bring us back to that kind of intimacy and that kind of happiness in God. So I study Zephaniah and I go, praise God. I study the rest of the minor prophets and I go, praise God. Thank you, Lord. And how does Zephaniah speak to the gospel? How does Zephaniah speak to the new covenant? How does Zephaniah speak to us here and today as new covenant people? In this way. Prophetic ministry is a community event. God used Zephaniah to intervene in the life of a nation because it had gone awry, in this case, terribly awry. Unfortunately, this is the reality of living in a fallen world. In heaven, the community of God will not go astray. It's impossible for the community of God in heaven to go astray because there's no sin. There's no sinful impulse. There's no sinful desire. There's no sinful inclination. We are completely a new man. That's not... I can't wait. Everyone will be in perfect communion with God and with one another. But until perfection is restored, intervention will continue to be needed. We need to correct and refine one another. We need to be prophets one to another. We need to watch out for each other, have each other's back, sound the alarm if we see danger in our brother and sister's life or as the situation may require, give a sound rebuke. Recently, I just had to share with a brother. He was in a bad place. And what he was seeing and what he was saying was completely the opposite to what God had for him. It's not fun to say the truth to people because that uncomfortable feeling is something that we naturally avoid. Before I was in the ministry, I was walking through a situation with a brother that was battling a, a persistent sin. Prayed with him, encouraged him, stood with him. I was on call for him. I was an accountability partner. I did everything I could. I was his lifeline. He'd been going back and forth and whining about his failures. And I still remember the room that we were in, the time that, it, that this conversation happened. He, he said, Rich, I can't do it. Do you think I can really overcome this? At that moment, it just hit me. Enough was enough, and I gave him the unvarnished truth. I said, there's no way you have it in you to overcome this. You just love your sin too much. You are utterly sick, and I give you zero chance of making it. He was stunned. No hope, no comfort. He couldn't believe that I had confronted him that way and spoke to him like that. But he knew what I said was exactly right. I'd become a prophet to him. Spoke the truth in love. To his credit, he took it right on the chin. He didn't fall into self-pity and say, you don't love me, you don't understand, you don't realize how hard I've tried, because he knew that all of those would have been just excuses. 
I'd been with him the whole way, and he took it like a man, and the truth set him free. From that day on, praise God, he got victory over his sin. It was a moment of spiritual sobriety. He finally put a stake in the ground. He realized, yep, I can't serve two masters. I've got to slay this sin. Now, obviously, when we talk about prophetic ministry, God has called different ones to stand in the office of the prophet, according to Ephesians 4. These are men in, that are gifted by God to speak to the community of the Lord. Obviously, Jesus is our chief prophet, and the Holy Spirit is given to us to speak deeply to us about the things that we need to correct. When you feel conviction, when you're reading the Bible, when you're in a cell group and someone says something and there's like, oh, that's Holy Spirit conviction. That's the prophet of God living inside of you saying, all right, take note. But we're also called to be prophets one to another. <coughs> Moses said what, that all God's people were prophets. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. What a statement in the Old Testament. Here was the, the, the great implementer of the Old Covenant, and by the inspiration of the Spirit, he saw that there would be a day in which all of God's people would be prophets. When Jesus died on the cross and distributed the Holy Spirit to all of us, we became a prophetic people, a prophetic nation. That means the blessing of a prophet, confirmation and revelation and wisdom and guidance and yes, rebuke and correction under the direction of the Spirit can flow through every single one of us. And that's a huge blessing because it's not just congregated or aggregated in one person. We don't have to say, okay, there's just one prophet out of a million or one prophet out of 10 million. No, God has put the Spirit in all of us. We all have that ability. And that's a huge blessing because it means that Jesus has built a self-governing self-regulating, self-cleansing mechanism right into the body so that our passion for God and our fervency for God as disciples can stay strong. If there's only one prophet in the land and I have to go to that one prophet in order to get myself right, that's not a very good plan for keeping the body moving and humming along. So God says, all of you can be prophets one to another. It means our salt and light as a spiritual community can shine brightly. So thank you, God, for the prophetic anointing. Keeps us healthy and in love with God as we should be. So Jesus, we look to you right now. We thank you for Zephaniah. We thank you for his courage, for his faith, God, to speak to Israel. Things that were not easy to say, but they were necessary. And Lord, you not only preached rebuke and judgment to them, you also preached hope to them. And we thank you, God, that the same spirit that was in Zephaniah, the same spirit that was in all the minor prophets, you have now given to us. When Jesus ascended, sat down at the right hand of God, and then sent his spirit upon the church. Lord, we have the spirit of encouragement. We have the spirit of discernment and the spirit of revelation. And yes, we have the spirit of correction, not to tear people down, but to build them up, to clear away that which is dead and to clear away that which is wrong, so that we can install that which is proper and good. Lord, cause our lives to be aligned with you, that we may live a life that's worthy of your gospel. We thank you, God, that you've given us your spirit, your prophetic spirit. We bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>